Please be seated. Good morning, St. James. It's a delight for me to be here and Stephanie, who's somewhere here, over there on the right. Always a great pleasure to be here. I want to thank Father Doug for his uh, great leadership. I have to say, uh, this is a place where liturgy is done reverently and beautifully, and I just enjoy, I enjoy being here. So it's a, uh, I want to thank you all, everyone who contributes to that. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. A decade or so ago, I had the privilege of attending a meeting at historic Canterbury Cathedral in Southeast England. Toward the end of the conference, we had the candlelight tour of the cathedral. We were taken to the very spot where Thomas Becket was martyred. All very dramatic, all very historic. But actually, in the midst of that tour, it was the explanation of the stones used to build Canterbury that hit me the most. According to the guide, the cathedral was rebuilt after 1066, after William the Conqueror and the Norman invasion. And every single stone in its reconstruction was dragged at some effort and expense from France. This was strange since there were quarries and stones readily available in Kent, much nearer where the cathedral was. But the Norman rulers were making a statement to their Saxon subjects. Come pray, but in a land which is ours. And as you pray, every stone of the cathedral will remind you who is in charge now. So when I first saw Canterbury Cathedral, step one, I was impressed. Maybe even a little starry-eyed as an American about all that millennium and a half of rich history. How impressive the church was and is. Augustine arriving in England, Becket himself, the Cathedral of Cranmer, the author of our prayer book, and on and on it goes. That's Canterbury Cathedral One. But looking again a second time, you can see all the flaws of the church. Power plays, conflicts, Compromise motives, that was Canterbury Cathedral too. All of us can identify with the first stage of our church life, our Christian life, when we are excited, maybe as children, maybe when we come back to church. And all of us at some point or other in our lives have had stage two, when the bloom is off the rose. This second stage comes often for people when somewhere along their journey in some church or other, they were hurt or disappointed. What then? There is, I believe, chapter three, a third moment. The third moment is going on every Sunday in Canterbury Cathedral and with all of us too. We are no longer naive, nor do we sit simply in disillusionment but on the far side of both, we see what matters the most, that God in his grace and power is capable of using his church, illustrious, broken for his purposes even today. 
using something as imperfect as the church as his sign, it is not God's mistaken judgment, but rather it is by his power, choosing to work through the weak and the flawed, through human actors who, though they are flawed in themselves, are fit instruments for his work. In this second Sunday of Advent, we turn our attention to the prophetic voice, and in particular that of John the Baptizer, crown of the prophets, herald of the Messiah. These Sundays are meant to get us ready to hear the news of the Christ child. Last Sunday, we were told that his humble advent as a child needs the horizon, the dark horizon of the coming end of the world for us to really understand it. We need to understand where we are in world history. And in the last Sunday of Advent, we will hear about Mary, the culmination of the people of God, obedient, and this is needed again to understand who Jesus, her son, is. We need to understand that our own identity is as servants of his as well. But here in the middle with John, we understand what religion, the work of the people of God, amounts to. And knowing these three stages, we are ready to hear the surprising news of the child Jesus. Just as it was so with that cathedral, so it is with John the baptizer. There are really three Johns that today's gospel tells us about. Three chapters about who he is for us. First of all, John sums up the sacred tradition, the treasures of the covenant, which the early books of the Bible disclose to us. Remember, he is a man of the wilderness, where you will recall the people of God out of Egypt met God in Moses face to face, with Moses face to face, and received the law. He's the inheritor of all that. He wears those skins and eats locusts and wild honey, which is a deliberate reminder of Elijah, who came back to call Israel to faithfulness when it had wandered. He reminds them about the justice they are meant to pursue, and he reminds them that, as Isaiah of Babylon said, they will be restored in the holy city. John 1 sums up everything holy, and worthy of being kept and received and prized. He is an essentially religiously conservative message. This is the inheritance, a rich and godly inheritance it is. But John brings with him on this Sunday a harsher edge as well. He has a sterner message about us and about religion. God is holy. And to draw near to him requires holiness. And so to quote the prophet just before John, who can withstand God's approach? No half measures here. John's way of saying it is this. The axe is now laid to the root. Here too we can quote scripture in the New Testament. The word of God cuts to the joint of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. God sees all of the heart. And if that is so, and God is an unquenchable fire, what of us would not be consumed? 
John 2. Everyone who meets up with God face to face in the Old Testament assumes that he's done for. John is an agent of renewal, yes, of getting serious about who God is and what we are like and leaving behind all half measures. He is a man who could recite easily all the hypocrisy and bad faith in Israel's history. And there is good reason for them, he says, to have been sent into exile. John, too, is also someone we can recognize. We, too, have our own complaints at some point in our life about religion and our own awareness of our own flaws. The cartoon famously said, we have met the enemy and it is us. John 1 and 2 are in their own ways true. Meeting each is necessary in your spiritual life and mine. They both show us something equally true about our situation. But really, the point of the gospel this Sunday morning, the point of the ministry of John lies elsewhere. It is a message from John 3. The point is really the shoot of Jesse Isaiah sang about long before. The point is really the righteous king of the Psalms, of which disappointing earthly kings are a pale anticipation. The point of today's gospel is in John's own word, another who is coming, who will immerse you not just in water, but in spirit and fire. And you and I this morning know who that is. John will soon know that it is his own cousin, though he has had to send his own followers just to make sure. He was surprised. The one awaited Jesus, ate with sinners, and described the kingdom as defined by mercy. The fire John speaks of in today's gospel is the fire of love and divine self-sacrifice, which takes even the prophet John a bit by surprise. True religion for John, John 3, turns out to be turning away from himself and toward the anointed in whom, yes, all the tradition is summed up, all the failings shown, but most of all, all the longings of us, the nations, in Jesus fulfilled. The same chapters as we see in John and in the church's history we also see in our own lives as Christians. The ancient cathedral and all its history were impressive, and then they disappointed. But remember, the real point was that God was capable of using all that, using all of us for the sake of his good news. You and I, we make our way to the far side by grace of enthusiasm and depression onto a state of expectation, not of what we will accomplish, but what God is already doing with us as his instruments. And that brings me to my word of spiritual encouragement for our confirmands and those to be received. On the far side of idealism and maybe discouragement, down to earth about ourselves, and all by grace we are given to hear the voice of Jesus Christ in this place himself in the word of God. The hand of Jesus himself washing and feeding us through the sacraments. 
the presence of Jesus in our brother and sister in the church and also those who are suffering and need care in the world. These and you too are the recipients and servants of the divine work itself through no power of ours. Alleluia. The church is holy and it is the font of grace and it is the taste of the kingdom, not by any power within it, but because the one who is spirit and fire and chooses to speak and act through it is still here. Amen.